Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all of the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world. The way it was and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome everybody to episode 19 of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Uh, This episode is titled The Deluge. We'll be taking you back to the Living Seas Pavilion in Epcot Center in the early to mid-1990s. As always, I'm your host, Todd McCartney, and sitting in with me tonight, as usual, is Deji Kuzier. Hey, Todd, how you doing? Good, good. Mr. Brian P. Miles. Greetings from Philadelphia, the birthplace of our nation's independence. How's it going tonight, Brian? Outstanding. There we go. Everybody's in a great mood. And Hal Bauer is coming direct from Florida. How are you tonight, Hal? Aloha. Doing well. Excellent. <clears throat> I got a special drink for tonight oh, since oh, we're doing the Living Seas. Yeah. I'm drinking water. You know, oh, <laughs> we're starting off See already. what you said and we raise a glass. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to get right into corrections and comments. Um, How you had a correction from one of last months about the Haunted Mansion bullet holes. Last month when we were talking, or a couple months ago, when we were talking to R.J. Ogren about his work as the artist preparatory person at at Walt Disney World, he mentioned that he had shot, that he had had to fix a couple places where bullet holes got shot through the glass in the Haunted Mansion's ballroom. And it was to take a spider and drop it down and decorate it as if it was a spider web. And there was another story about the similar thing happening at Disneyland. And my assumption was then, since we had talked to an actual person rather than hearing it uh, third hand, that maybe that didn't really happen at Disneyland. Maybe it just happened at Walt Disney World. And as we, uh, we got lots of tweets from people saying like, no, 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 that really happened at Disneyland. So by the strangest, oddest coincidence in the world, the same thing happened both at Disneyland and Walt Disney World with people taking shots at the glass. And independently, artists at both parks came up with the same solution to put up a spider web over the bullet hole and to put a fake spider on it. So that is our correction. Okay. So it was actually done in both locations and not just both one. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, I've got something here. Do you guys remember uh, there was a film that I don't know if we reviewed it, but it's been on our site called um, Through My Father's Lens. It was a, a 1973 film that my or 72 film that my parents took. And I don't know if you remember, but as you know, uh, last month I had mentioned that my mom passed away. And uh, thanks to everybody for all the condolences and everything that was sent. It was wonderful to hear from everybody. Um, so I was going through their stuff as, as, as we were cleaning out my mom's house, and I came across a diary. And this diary is dated... Um, September 11th, 1972. And it's kind of interesting here because it uh, lends interesting information regarding the uh, destruction and recreation of the uh, Tomorrowland Speedway. So apparently they ate in the hospitality house on the town square and then they were off. So I'm reading directly my mom's words here. So of course Disney World is fantastic. They're still building it on and it'll be something within the next six to seven years. To our disappointment... Many things were closed, like the Skyride, 
the Jungle Cruise and other attractions such as the Canoe Ride. In fact, one ride, the Grand Prix, was ripped up and gone. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this obviously leads, you know, gives us a good date of when they were doing that. This was September 11th, 1972. Huh. Um, Another little note here, we can't wait to see the future city, which they must have seen the preview for Epcot or something. Um, we ate lunch in the uh, in Fantasyland and dinner in the Crystal Palace. Uh, they left in the last bus out at 7 p.m. and they were really tired. So attractions recommended, Country Bear Jamboree, in parentheses, hysterical, Haunted House, amazing. If you had wings, America the Beautiful, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, these were our favorite Though we recommend everything. We missed only a few things. Too bad we didn't have another day as we do have tickets for it. Oh, well, we'll be back. And um, dinner cost them $4.50, according to this. $0.52 cents on, on park maps. Those <laughs> well, are some least very now, detailed notes. Yeah, at <laughs> least now we know where you got your pension for writing guidebooks, Tom. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> your mom was blogging before there was blogging. The blog, yeah. I've got it. And this is on page 22 of, of this thing. If it gives you any indication of what we're looking at. But the most expensive thing on their daily list photo developing at $8.52. So, <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, they bought some extra tickets for $3.30 and uh, spent 55 cents on a cup of punch, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> cup of punch. Yeah, $35.93 for the day. Cup of punch while you wear your. I hope that jumper. was from the uh, Sunshine Tree Terrace, one of those brilliant citrus punches that I they hope used so. to sell back then. Yeah, they don't have that now. No, no. Back uh, back in those days, there was an entire menu developed uh, from really from park opening until around the mid '80s. Uh, very creative uses of citrus. You can read all about it in Michael Crawford's book, The Progress City Primer. Right. Ah, yes, got that. There's a whole chapter on that uh, on that uh, on the menu at the at the uh, Sunshine Tree Terrace and the way they incorporated that uh, Florida citrus uh, growers sponsorship into the Love parks. Citrus. Yeah. So why don't we move on to uh, viewer mail? Uh, JT you ran out to the mailbag. We've got quite a bit this month. A couple of things that we even uh, were able to uh, take care of some mysteries for some of our listeners too, right? Uh, yeah, Todd, I got uh, some good stuff this month, actually. And, you know, being gone, it was cool to kind of catch up and read the stuff. Cause hey, I wasn't, I we should welcome you back. Yeah, I, yeah uh, you're back. Back. I feel a little rusty. Um, so Mike Forrester, uh, he gave us a picture uh, from the mid-80s. And just to let you know, I was five then, if we're keeping up. You know, you guys <laughs> mentioned my age a million times on the last podcast. Um, it's all right, little fella. I know. Um <laughs> <clears throat> they went on what they uh, think is an Osceola class side wheeler. Is that true? Is that what he was on? Yes. Yes. Yep. Yes. How okay. confirmed for him? Yes. Okay. Uh, he remembers going on an evening cocktail cruise from the Contemporary, and he ordered his first mai tai on the cruise. And this is not to be confused with the Bill Court cruise, right? That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> All right. Um, both natives send me regular trips to Disney. Uh, no pictures, though. So this photo he thought was pretty significant and uh, definitely a pretty cool snap, I think. Do you guys agree? Yes. Yeah. Uh, how you, you, you confirmed. You, you knew exactly when you saw it that it certainly was the, the side wheeler. So they, it is a, probably one of the rarest pictures I've seen because there's very few pictures of people uh, on the inside of the thing. Tons of people took pictures of the outside of it, but very few inside. But I was able to match up the uh, like the scroll work on the windows 
to uh, to confirm that it was that because from the outside you can see there's this sort of pattern in the woodwork on the outside that you can see through the windows there so bam that was it he got it and how went so far as to tell him pull some info on the actual booze cruises that they used to run in the evening and what was served and how much it costs and yep. it was kind of neat yeah very cool there you go. well that was from Mike thanks Mike for the uh, the nice uh, picture and email. Um, second message I got, uh, another email, was from a guy named Aaron Davis. He uh, had a sweet memory here. I thought it was really cool. <clears throat> he said uh, back in 86 or 88, he was at Epcot with his parents getting the uh, Mickey Mouse ice cream bar. And he says to this day, his mom claims that the ice cream vendor uh, worker was Michael Jackson wearing Whoa. some fake facial hair. All right. <laughs> I know, right? I, I thought that was crazy because Michael Jackson did do weird stuff like this. I mean, he did a lot of weird stuff, but I heard like he would disguise, walk in public just because he could not go in public without being mobbed. So I don't know if there's any. Wasn't truth. there a story about him dressing up as a character at one point, too, and going really? to the parks? Yeah, I oh, think. Oh, really? Yeah. Somebody, there was a story. Go ahead. I was going to say, someone said a story about him in a wax museum. Just standing there? <laughs> like, yeah, there was some <laughs> wax museum in Buena Park or something. Of and there was a statue of him, and then he would substitute himself for the statue. And then when someone would come up, he'd like jump out at him. Arnold Schwarzenegger did that when they announced the new Terminator movie a couple a year ago. And he goes to this wax. There's video of it. He goes to this wax museum and poses in the Terminator outfit. And then when people walk up, he he leans down and scares the crap out of him. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I don't know. Michael Jackson did spend some time in the Disney parks. He, you know, you'd see the seven dwarfs running around his house. I mean, he was a big Disney fan in the the light tunnel, the whole deal. So I mean, this could be possible. He spent a lot of time there. Yeah, Epcot especially. When uh, I'm sure he had clout and pull too. Yeah, you know? when I was in high school back in '86, I graduated in '86 and I lived in Orlando. Like around '85, uh, either right, I think right before Captain Yo came out there, uh, one of my classmates mentioned that she saw him at one of the resort hotels there, uh, just doing stuff. So, you know what I mean, he was in and out it, all the time. It could be that he had had a rough experience earlier that day when a guy gave him a flat tire. <laughs> and he said, I'll make it up to you if I can just stand here and sell some ice cream bars. Right. Give me a disguise. And then somebody saw him and backed into a bench at the theater there. Exactly. In yeah, yeah, it was all like, of, is that Michael Jackson giving ice cream out? For, for those of you who've listened to every episode, you're getting all of these jokes. And, and totally, for those of you who haven't, yeah. we're really sorry. Right. I'll just go back to episode one and, re- and listen from there. <laughs> all right. Um, so what else have we got, JT? Anything that sounds like to- a confirmation, by the way. Yeah, I hope it yeah, was. If you know anything to this truth, uh, please call the Unsolved Mysteries hotline to let us know. <laughs> Um, another one from Matt Fondacaro. Um, he says, if you're, we're curious if we have heard of the promotional videos released by GM in 82 and 1983, the reality of dreams and dark ride scenes. Anybody know anything about that? Cause it's no clue here. I, you know, he sent some YouTube links and I, I had not seen them before. The quality isn't fantastic, but, um, you know, I watched part of them and I, I've never seen anything before of that. How have you heard of it? No, no, that was the first time I'd seen them too. Yeah. yeah so these were GM productions. Yep. Uh, and I think the actual release on YouTube, I think he said, came from GM, didn't it? I think. I think so. Oh, was it? I think so. I want to yeah, say that's, no that's, that's, it had some yeah, kind of bumper on it that it was looked like it was their thing. Yeah, it was and like a GM archival thing. So it's uh, it's out there on it. YouTube now. Uh, they're called the Reality of Dreams, uh, General Motors. So take a look for it. Yep, nothing very, very to do cool. with uh, World of Motion, though. Didn't. 
Didn't oh no, remember. no, it, it was. No, it, it actually did quite a bit of uh, behind the scenes like development stuff. And, oh, uh, yes. okay. Had a bunch Sorry. of GM execs talking about you know how proud they were of what they were doing and what they're going to accomplish with World of Motion. It's a pretty awesome little riff. You know, this this shows how maybe GM was one of the few sponsors that uh, took advantage of what they had created and used it for other promotional materials. Because I mean, I, I don't recall seeing Kraft put out any video about. You know, <laughs> what they yeah. did with the land or anything like that. That we know of yet. Right, that we know of that has served. But, but speaking of craft, Todd. Yes. You've got some an update on our blue mayonnaise, don't you? We oh. do. We do. Thanks like to that. Wedway Radio, our partners in podcast crime. Uh, they were able to supply a blue mayonnaise photo, and um, we appreciate them. Uh, it was from their own personal archives. So it did not look appetizing at all. So it looked. I, yeah, I, so, uh, yeah. So it. If in the mid-90s you wanted a, a hamburger with uh, mayonnaise that looked like Crest on it, yeah. <laughs> Crest toothpaste, uh, there was a photo and uh, from Tomorrowland for that brief period of time where Heinz and Kraft experimented with oddly colored condiments. And thank God that, that went the way. <laughs> can, can you imagine that if Pepsi was still in there and you had, you had the blue mayo – Crystal you clear had, Pepsi. You would have crystal clear Pepsi. You know, green ketchup. You just would have been all messed up. Now, did those? Did these blue mayonnaise and the ketchup come out of that like air pump thing they have now? Was that? Do you remember? I I think so. It's, I, really, I mean, those are just industrial bags. Down yeah, there ketchup just, that's, and stuff. Yeah, that's my favorite part of going in there, though. I love just that. Sitting, <laughs> you like filling that's up the little paper part, cups. Not the food, the condiments. That's your favorite part. <laughs> you know how I eat. It's the stuff. Yeah, I don't care. It's just yeah, it's just slathered right there on your subway. Take a few, I'm, few I love nineties Tomorrowland, so this is right up my alley. <laughs> All right, so that's all I got. Um, if you'd like to write us a podcast at RetroDisneyWorld.com, send us an email, tweet, Facebook message, anything, and you could end up on the show. That's right. All right, guys, well, it's time to do this month's audio rewind. Um, last month we said we had like 92% correct or something like 97%. Yes. 100% correct entries this month. And it Impressive. Was another, yeah, yeah. People knew their stuff, so... Before we get into it, let's take a listen to last month's Audio Rewind Puzzler. All right. Did any of you guys not know it? Uh, I, I didn't. I mean, I, I figured out what it was, but not from having any familiarity with it from the attraction. Okay. But it sounded a lot like the kind of music I'd hear if I was buying an ice cream bar from an odd man <laughs> <laughs> outside the journey into imagination. Okay, the answer to this month's audio rewind is the exit music to Captain EO, Another Part of Me, by Michael Jackson. Well, we do have a winner this month. It is Brian Blake. Congratulations to you. Uh, you are Yay. winning the yeah. We've got the Pirates of the Caribbean mug from the late eighties. Um, I don't. Do we? Do we actually finally figure out a date on that? I know we created a Twitter. We, we actually over. got late seventies. I think late seventies. We ended okay. up with it. Yeah. All right. All right. So it's it's pretty cool. We're gonna get that out to you, Brian, along with some other stickers and stuff. Um, now this month we have a prize. Uh, Brian, you've got it right. I do. There. Uh, a matching pair of drinking vessels this month. Yeah, look at this. We're continuing on with the uh, hydration theme. Yes, because we want you to be hydrated. And what these are is uh, back before things were genericized, uh, each resort 
and uh, Park used to have these uh, mugs that they would sell, and you would buy them, and you got free refills for life uh, of, from the soda machines. Uh, I have a matching pair of them that say Disney's All-Star Resorts on them, but they are exclusively a movie theme. So these would have been sold, and they have two different handles. One has a red handle, and one has a black handle. Which one is more rare? We don't know. We don't know, but that's why we're sending them both to the winner this month. You may display them, possibly turn them into a flower pot. Uh, award them on some other podcast if you don't like them. <laughs> Just give them to Uncle Bernie because you never know what to get them for Christmas. Can Any you of those still get things. the free refills in them? Well, the the theory is people report, and I've never seen it firsthand, but report if you go back to the resorts and say, hey, I bought these. When I bought them, they said it was free free refills for life. Nine times out of ten, the, the parks will or the uh, the resort will say, uh, all right, you got us, you know. How do they activate them then on the, uh, the... They don't. What they usually do, my understanding is they give you a uh, oh, a, a, new a, one. A, a small RFID cup to, to be able to fill them. But I don't know if any of that's true. So don't say, I heard it on a podcast. I can come over here and drink all the soda I want. Uh, I didn't say that. Brian's going to receive a bill for like, you know... I'm going to cease and desist from exactly. Disney's lawyers. I, I did not say that. I just... I was answering a question that was asked by either Howard or JTA. <laughs> and it's not even healthy. Don't drink that. It's much not. Soda, no, kids. it's not. Oh, they have go seltzer. They, they have all kinds. Yeah, I'm, you can get seltzer from there. Actually, the seltzer you don't need the RFID for. So there you go. Hmm. All right, so we need a puzzler for that. Let's take a listen to this month's puzzler. All right, so if you know the answer, send your entries to podcast at retrodisneyworld.com. A random winner will be drawn from all the correct entries and receive this month's prize, the matching mugs. Uh, please submit your entries on or before June 13th, 2016, and all entries will be entered into the big prize drawing on December 2016 for the prize pot. What do we have in the prize pot so far? Right now, my list is, I needed a new piece of paper. We have an Orange Bird Yo-Yo, a World of Motion brochure, a golf resort, a golf bag tag, Epcot salt and pepper shakers, a uh, Disney World glass candy dish. And are we adding a new item, or am I missing the one from last week? I believe from Howe's Basement Land of Treasures, um, he's got something else to add. Well, this month, I have something that I probably picked up at a at a Disney and a convention sometime in the 90s. It's, uh, it's a, some photocopied pages of a thing called the Tomorrowland Handbook. Now, this was apparently some kind of training manual that was put together in 71 to try to teach people what Tomorrowland was all about. Hmm. Uh, that tells you about the Tomorrowland story, and it's got all kinds of interesting facts about uh, things that are in Tomorrowland. For example... Uh, it's got a beautiful section on, I know, our favorite restaurant uh, in Tomorrowland, because we couldn't eat at those fancy places like those Oscar Mayer places that you went to, Todd. <laughs> um, so we have some fascinating inf- info about the Tomorrowland Terrace, which they said will be the largest fast food operation at Walt Disney World, which features a broilmation machine with oh. a new conveyor system <laughs> capable of cooking 3,000 hamburger patties per hour. You meant there's just one person on one side putting them in and another person scooping them out on the <laughs> That's other. That's true. That's like the I Love Lucy thing with the chocolates, right? Yeah. Turn up the broilmation. <laughs> the broilmation. Uh, yeah. So so it's got some great info. 
Uh, got some stuff about what they're going to do in 1972 when they add the People Mover sponsored by Goodyear, which didn't happen. Uh, and the Tomorrow Rand Railway Station, which didn't happen. So there's uh, some pretty insightful stuff here. Yeah. All right. So Brian and I were on another podcast uh, this month. We were on the George and Tony Entertainment Show, and we want to give a shout out and a thank you to them for for having us on. But um, uh, we syndicated their show as as episode 18 and a half, 18.5 here on, on the Retro Disney World podcast. So take a listen to that. But George and Tony have uh, decided that they'd like to give away an additional prize this month. So they are they are giving away three George and Tony Entertainment Show t-shirts um, for all those listeners that write in and then can properly identify um, the correct answer to this. If you listen towards the show, end of the show of George and Tony, episode uh, it's 18 and a half on, on our podcast, They're, they put a song on at the very end. If um, you identify that song, write into podcast at retrodisneyworld.com, title it the George and Tony uh, Entertainment Show entry, and uh, we will pick ra- three random winners uh, for those that correctly identify it uh, to be chosen to receive one of the T-shirts. So we've got pro- the big prize pack. We've got our stuff. We've got three T-shirts to give away. It's a good month for listening. A um, lot, of, lot of stuff out there. So We must love our listeners. We do. They love we, us. We have to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, with that said, let's move on. And we are now going to descend to the depths of the living seas and, um, Hal's going to give us a little history lesson first, though, a little bit about um, where the Living Seas came from. And I'll, I'll tell you guys, I've been, this is one of the episodes I've been waiting to do. And I think by the time all of us did the research, we never realized how much was going on there and how much there is to talk about. So, um, And thank you, listeners, for choosing this topic. That's right. Yes, so yes. Thank you for reminding me, Brian. Let's, let's explain. So last month, we, we put it out for uh, our listeners to choose whether they wanted to hear the land communicore or living seas and i will say that the um the the communicore jumped out to a very quick lead and then all of a sudden we started to see uh the 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 living seas to coming up and then before you knew it there was a there was a late break um, by the land but in the end um it was a pretty pretty wide margin the the living seas won so this is for all the listeners who voted for that and don't worry if you didn't vote for it we're going to get to the other two at some point they're they're on our to-do list so the history, how, what we see, just like most Epcot pavilions, is not what was originally on the drawing board. It obviously had many incarnations of, of um, concept and, and thought, and, um, and, but we do know that it was always supposed to be educational. They didn't want dolphin shows. They knew that SeaWorld was down the street, but, um, but like I said, it was there from the beginning. So what did we have originally? Yeah, so so they did they did want to do something they they knew they wanted to do something with uh, with the sea because they considered that to be a frontier like space so they felt that that was a really good uh, thematic fit for Epcot they went through uh, numerous iterations of it probably every Imagineer available worked on some version of it or some idea of it Tony Baxter did a uh, a pretty famous version with kind of like a bubble. A giant glass bubble in the center of it, which was probably incredibly impractical, uh, which is why that design didn't win out. But there's uh, in the Epcot book, um, 
the very famous Walt Disney's Epcot Center, creating the new world of tomorrow. There's a really nice big picture of a, a full-blown model that that they had done of of what was then called just the seas, uh, <clears throat> and that included probably what looked like a, a seven to ten minute Omnimover ride. Um, and sort of the gag was it was supposed to be it would take you from mythology to technology. So. Uh, as was with a lot of the Epcot attractions. They give you like a little piece of history and then use that to build you up to taking you into the future. Um, so the main concept there is that you would come in, you would meet Poseidon. Poseidon would kind of tell you, uh, you know, about how man needs to live in harmony with the sea. And then you would get into these bubble pods. <laughs> <laughs> they really were going to be bubbles. Like yeah, bubbles. Clear acrylic bubbles. Like in uh, Jurassic World that they ride. That's right, yeah. Riding that. And then, uh, and then you would ride th- through an audio animatronic, uh, dry for wet, kind of like what they ended up doing with the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea ride in Tokyo. And you would go through all these special effects show scenes uh, underneath the water. You would start at a microscopic view and see plankton, and then eventually you'd get bigger and bigger and bigger, almost like an inverse of, uh, of inner space. And by the time you got to the end, uh, a shark would lunge out at you and try to eat you. <laughs> and then uh, from there, you would kind go through Kind the of tank. a precursor to what happens now. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Ironically enough. Yeah, ironically. It's, yeah. yeah. And then you would, uh, you would come out from there into, uh, into the coral reef area and then into the futuristic sea base of 2030. So they had a really solid idea of what they wanted to do. Probably there were some some practicality issues uh, because of the technology, like a big giant acrylic or glass bubble just probably was impractical. Uh, but the biggest thing that they really needed was a sponsor. Uh, they had planned on opening it in 82 with the rest of Epcot, couldn't do it. Uh, finally decided in 84 they were going to go ahead and try to open it uh, without a sponsor. They had just pretty much given up on on that. And then uh, finally, as, as they were getting ready to try to go sponsorless, uh, United Technologies came forward. Now, my question for a long time was like, well, why United Technologies? And I remember going on the Living Seas and noticing that the Hydrolators had a notice elevator, uh, yep. you know, like sticker or imprint on the door. So I thought, oh, that must be the co- that must be the thing. It's like they were probably doing business with Otis Elevator. And then uh, to just manage to like trick them into <laughs> becoming a sponsor <laughs> for it. Uh, but as it turned out, uh, the reason that United Technologies ended up sponsoring it is because uh, their uh, CEO, a guy by the name of Harry Gray, uh, he just wanted to be part of the Disney fraternity. He thought the other companies like GM and Kraft and AT&T were all big names, and he wanted his company to be just like those companies, and he wanted a seat at that table. So... Um, even because though they, it wasn't a household name, that's the interesting thing about right. it. Right. So, uh, so they don't make consumer products. They make things like Pratt and Whitney jet engines, Sikorsky helicopters. Uh, they make uh, air conditioning systems. They do all kinds of technology stuff, but they don't do any technology in the ocean, which was really why they couldn't find a sponsor uh, in the first place. There really wasn't any company that was making money from the ocean. Uh, except maybe like the Gordon's Fisherman or something. I guess they didn't think about going after them. <laughs> they should have had the Navy sponsor it. Uh, oh, they could have actually. And yeah, they ended that, up that having a lot of uh, a lot of involvement by the Navy and, and people in the development process. 
But uh, so this guy, uh, Harry Gray, just got behind it 100%. And he said, we're all about technology. This is about technology. So we think it's a good fit for us. So they they finally got their sponsor. Um, there's a Imagineer by the name of Tim Delaney, uh, who uh, was coming off doing tons of renderings uh, for a bunch of different projects at Epcot. He had designed Starcade. Uh, and uh, actually started as a graphic designer illustrator with them, but but ended up working on a whole bunch of stuff for the for the pitch concepts. Um, and he was really interested in doing undersea stuff, and he had done a bunch of transportation renderings at his time in school. So he attached himself to the project and started doing uh, paintings and concept renderings. Uh, and if you see these renderings, I mean they're a dead on ringer for what was was actually built. Right. Um, so. He was working on that stuff, and at the same time, uh, there was a guy by the name of Kim Murphy, K-Y-M, who uh, started as a teenager uh, at SeaWorld and kind of worked himself up uh, in the aquarium section of that out in San Diego. Worked there for 10 years, worked his way into like public relations and uh, television, and uh, left SeaWorld Apparently, this guy's like a real old school pitchman, so he could he could basically sell anybody on anything. He ended up designing a one million gallon water tank uh, that was built in Bermuda for shooting the nineteen seventy seven movie The Deep with uh, Nick Nolte, right? And uh, yeah, awesome yeah, movie. Yeah, Jacqueline Bissett, uh, which was uh, written by the same author that did Jaws, so they expected that'd be a huge blockbuster. So. So he actually designed this water tank for that. And as he was doing that, he thought, boy, I bet this would be a really great thing for Disney. So he actually approached Disney on the side uh, as a consultant and said, hey, I I think I know this way that you guys could build this thing. They ended up hiring, hiring him. Uh, That project wasn't ready. So he actually acted as project manager for the land pavilion. And then as Epcot was wrapping up uh, in its first phase, he and Delaney got together and started working on uh, all the design concepts, concepts with uh, a bunch of consultants from uh, from the maritime industry and scientists, uh, people from National Geographic, the Navy, like a whole bunch of consultants, put their heads together to try to come up with what this thing would look like. Uh, and sure enough, that's how we got the thing that was there today. And it was actually Kim Murphy who came up with the the concept and the name for the hydrolator. They didn't know what it was, but they knew they wanted to do that, so they they grabbed that and and went with it. So we're yeah we're going to get to the hydro hydrolators a little bit later. But the uh, the the design of the building was really neat because there still is really neat because the if you ever look at it from the top, it's got these swirling curves to it that almost resemble like what a, a seashell does or what the water can do to the sand. The you know the the building itself. Uh, kind of has that um, color of the beach, you know, color of sand. Stuff. Yeah, it's supposed to be like a combination of a wave and yep. a shell and some other sea elements. It, 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 it if you, you can't really appreciate it unless you look at it from the top too. You look at <laughs> Which from, is the funny thing from the ground floor, you would never. It doesn't no, occur no. to you that that's. You kind of get the curve as you're going in, but we'll, we'll, well, let's let's talk a little bit about that. So, so from the outside, you know, you have this commanding mural as as you go in, and and. For those that are seeing it now, you know, where it's the seas with Nemo, that it's partially left from the original mural. And the original was just amazing. Um, it was about, it's, it still is 30 feet high and about 100 feet long and had different levels of painted stucco. Um, and they were supposed to represent all the different uh, levels in the sea and the sun setting and, and 
Um, I really had an amazing, I, I, I almost, it's almost like something you would see in the land. They go very hand in hand in the way that mm-hmm. the, the things were designed, but it was much brighter than things you saw in the land. Um, but that was just on the outside. And again, the curve, you would walk in and, and you would start taking this curve in just as you do now. Um, and uh, of course, we, we can't discount the rocks out front with the with the splashing wave, which still splashes to this day, albeit it's got some seagulls sitting. <clears throat> but at the time, that was awesome. Just oh, yeah. As a as a setup to walk up to this thing and suddenly have the water come spraying out of it as if a wave hit it, out right. of, seemingly out of nowhere. It used to scare you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sounded like a flushing toilet. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've got a sound clip of it. I, I'm going to insert it here. We'll take a listen. So I, I visited this, um, I visited the, the, the attraction in October 1986. So it opened January, right? It was January, right, January. 15th or so in 1986. So I was, I was there relatively soon after. Um, and I'll admit it, it was one of my favorite attractions there for what we're going to get to here is when you put it all together with such a cohesive experience. So as we walk through this attraction, um, I want our listeners to kind of think about that and how all the different sections we're going to talk to tonight would have come together in a way that presented an experience um, and set the stage for something that you were going to see and you were getting to and you're going to. There's anticipation buildup um, and how well everything was orchestrated. Now in the seas with Nemo, I I see what they did. We understand why they did it, but it doesn't have as much of that that oomph. And and when we get later on, we start talking about Seabase Alpha, think about what we talked about previously, and I think you're going to see how the whole experience of, of the pavilion was was completely different. So it really it really is the last of the original pavilions. They all worked so well together, both as a group and then individually. Each of those pavilions, those original planned pavilions, the whole experience inside was you, you use the word cohesive, right? And and uh, you know a start to end experience. And then when they did the next pavilion, the health pavilion in '89, it was the first time you kind of saw everything was. They had a lot of stuff, but they all could have existed on their own. You didn't. Right. You didn't. They didn't necessarily work together, right? Um, and and so I, I think that this this pavilion is like it's almost like the moment Epcot got it perfect, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and that they weren't going to do any better than that, right? And and so if we start that experience back at that sign, we just talked about the waves crashing on the sign. You know you're going in. You you come into the building. You're curving around like a seashell or or a. Uh, um, you know, sand at a beach, whatever you want to call it. So, the queue was um, was interesting. It's the same switchback queue that goes back and forth as it is today. Um, it had a very uh, a lot of blue carpet and had the um, uh, almost looked like an oak or, or or maple capped rails on it. You'd go back and forth, and it wasn't uh, what you see today, where it's just supposedly the beach. You know, you're walking and getting lower and lower in the beach. Uh, back then, it was at all different sites pictures of um, sea exploration and had different types of artifacts and also um, I think some of them were correct me if I'm around how uh, they were they were almost like printed on acetate right or hanging from lucite yeah there were like big glass panels or some sort of stuff yeah. that they were <clears throat> attached to those panels so and there were some replicas like uh, Sir Edmund Haley's first diving bell um, some breathing devices from the 1800s all right. So towards the end of the queue, there were uh, a diving uh, a diving suit and an 11 foot model of the Nautilus, 
Um, now, legend has it that uh, both were used in the films 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but how you have some opposite conflicting information? Yeah, so, <clears throat> so the model is, in fact, uh, the 11-foot special effects model that was used in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, ah. which used to be located where? Guesses? Uh, it's got to be in the Magic Center. Somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, close to it. It was in the Walt Disney story. Ah, okay. So that uh, in the sense. outside queue before you went to see the movie in the display area there. And they moved yep. it over to the Living Seas uh, during uh, some rehab period during that. <laughs> the um, the diving suit was actually a reproduction done by a guy named Tom Sherman, who was a absolute 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea fanatic. Uh, loved the movie. Uh, crawled all over the uh, the Disneyland uh, display when it was done out there as a boy. Uh, when it was demolished, he went in, snuck in, and took pieces of it home. As a young man, he ended up transforming his uh, apartment in Hollywood into like a, a Nautilus interior. Um, and then later on for Disney, he actually ended up doing the design work for uh, for the Twenty Thousand Leagues Walkthrough Exhibit uh, that was in built in Paris. So that that was a fake one, but I'm sure he made it as as perfectly accurate as possible. So there we go. Myth. Very cool. (laughs) So as you come to the end of the queue, um, you are shuttled into kind of what we could call the pre pre show or or the waiting room, which was um, an oval shaped room. And um, when the pre pre show, so to speak, wasn't going on. there were different blue and green waves projected on the screen. It did surround you around, but it wasn't really true Circle Vision 360, as you know it. It was more of a, it's kind of an oval, oval-shaped room. Um, and this is kind of where United Technologies threw in, what do we do? Why are we here? Um, there were some, they go through some um, pioneers of, of sea exploration and stuff, uh, some different ships sailing across the ocean uh, and across the screen. And then they went into different types of drawings of what United Technologies employees and researchers are doing to to help, um, uh, you know, research on the seas. And then um, this room was connected to two different theaters. There was Theater 1 to your right and Theater 2 to your left. And essentially, uh, up until 1999, we'll get to that a little bit, um, they would alternate the theaters. So this was the, they would fill up the pre-show area and then, about every four minutes or so, a door would open. So they'd open the door on the left, and you'd go into the, the pre-show theater. And then the door on the right, the next four minutes, would open and go into that pre-show theater. So they flip-flop, and both theaters remained the, the, showed the same film, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Now, the reason I said up until in 1999, um, when United Technologies ended their sponsorship, uh, what they started to do is that the uh, one theater... They would allow you to go in and see the movie that we're going to talk about. Um, and on the right side, they had a logo that said, you know, directly to the hydrolators. And you could skip the, the movie if you wanted to. You will soon be exploring the amazing and mysterious environment of our living seas. Your journey begins with an important briefing, a seven-minute presentation, introducing you to some of the marvels beneath the surface. This first stop will take place in the briefing room through the doors on your right. Immediately after the briefing, you will board the hydrolators to Seabase Alpha. For those of you who are returning to Seabase Alpha or choose to bypass the presentation, we will be loading you directly into the hydrolators shortly after the briefing begins. 
the direct entrance to the hydrolator. Which I think some people liked, some some people didn't like. I think people liked it because they were already seeing the film. They didn't want to sit there for eight minutes. They just wanted to skip right to Seabase Alpha and, and, and get on the, the ride and, and get in and explore. Um, and at that time, obviously, all the United Technologies um, slideshow and, and, and pre-pre-show information was all removed. And... Um, they just kind of had these projections that, you know, Living Seas Hydrolator here, Living Seas movie here, and they were over over the doors. Now that you've, you've moved through the, the United Technologies pre-pre-show, whatever you want to call it, we move into one of these two theaters here. Um, we've got uh, big, long blue benches, and um, a lot of people thought that you stood in this theater, but you did indeed sit down. I remember sitting there. Um, and then, you know, a cast member would come in and, and introduce part of the attraction. Now, um, the film presented was called The Sea, and the narrator was um, Cope Alexander Willis. And uh, she did a lot of TV spots. I didn't realize this. She was on the new WKRP in Cincinnati and played Lady Caroline in The Princess Diaries 1 and 2. Hmm. A lot of other random um, one or two, you know, appearances as cameos on, on, on certain TV shows. But you can look her up on Internet uh, Movie Database. Uh, mm-hmm. The film was uh, directed by Paul Gerber, and she runs shy of, of eight minutes or so. But before we get into the content of it, I want to read what the St. Petersburg Evening Independent wrote about it on January 28th, 1986. So this is just after the, the pavilion opened. The sea is a real triumph, an artfully photographed and scripted depiction of the drawing of the sea, how we depend on them for survival, and how they drive the world's weather, and how there is much to learn. So I think that's a really good synopsis and when I was doing research for this I, I came across a lot of Associated Press articles and this was one of the you know freelance written articles about the living seats that wasn't from the AP and I, I think that really sums it up I mean, you guys have all seen it what are your comments on it before I go through I, kind of the rundown I think of the educational type films we to take the one that they did with energy and symbiosis mm-hmm. and the, this is the best I mean I, you walked away from it kind of understanding most people didn't I mean, honestly most people didn't understand how the oceans were formed and if and even if you earned it or learned it rather in earth science back in ninth grade uh, adults probably had forgotten at that point and so you watch this and and you just instantly walked away saying boy that's like the coolest seven minutes i ever saw but the guy's other films probably are worth mentioning that he did for epcot and that is symbiosis uh paul gerber and he also did the norway tourism film uh, the, the film that you would see at the end of Maelstrom. Right. So he did those three oh. films for Epcot, and all three of them are memorable in their own way. A lot of people don't remember Symbiosis, uh, but we all remember the Norway film because <laughs> it lived on forever. And again, we just talked about Symbiosis about as much as we need to. No, just yeah. <laughs> so how, JT, what do you remember? Because then we're going we're gonna to listen to a little bit of the film. Um, I don't know. I was so little when I saw it. It was boring to me. Honestly, I was more scary. excited. Um, I don't remember being scared. I just remember like, all right, this is really because now I know what my parents meant when they said, "Are you sure you want to go to Epcot?" When I was in the fifth grade, because I was like, "Oh my god, they were right." And I was, and then when then the attraction gets better, obviously. But yeah, it was a scary first moment. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I will say, I think it is one of the most powerful films that was created for Epcot. Uh, just brilliant narration. Uh, fantastic music. Uh, that guy does know how to scare the pants off of you, or at least, <laughs> you know, very dramatically hit you with things. Uh, and it certainly does a fantastic job setting up everything that you're about to see. 
So as the film starts, um, the lights dim, and a, on the screen you see a galaxy of stars, and it's followed by a closer look at planet Earth. Try to imagine, just for a moment, that somewhere in the endless reaches of the universe, on the outer edge of a galaxy of a hundred thousand million suns, deep within a cluster of slowly forming planets, a small sphere of just the right size lies just the right distance from its mother star, cooling in the coldness of space. Try to imagine. Uh, and then we see a, a volcano loudly erupting, um, quite loud, and the, the lava comes flowing down its sides, and steam is starting to rise from the hardened lava on the ground. And then that cloud-covered planet waits. And waits... And waits until finally those clouds of gas and steam condense and rain upon that planet. Suddenly you hear thunder roars, lightning is striking, the rain pours down, it's hitting the hot ground, and uh, steam is, is rising up. Rain upon that planet Earth. And they rain, and rain, and rain. The deluge. Rain continues to pour down, and we see a lot of water falling off, a large waterfall. A deluge of such magnitude that the world's greatest waterfalls, flowing together for more than a million years, would only just begin to approach its results. For when it finally stopped... The water stops, a few drips fall into a puddle, and then the camera pans up to see the ocean with the sun setting in the background. The seas had been born. That, that to me, guys, that beginning s- sequence is probably the most impactful. And... From there on, obviously, we go into the weather. Um, I also think the exploration scene with the boo-boo and every, every, <laughs> every sonar ping, the lights come on and you see something and it fades away. And the lights come on and you see something fade away. Um, and they really go into what the seas can provide and, and the different research that's, that's out there. And towards the end, I think it's one of the most brilliant uses of early, commu- uh, early computer animation um, we see a computer-generated sea base on the on the screen, and you fly through its doors. It's kind of a wireframe, actually. Um, and you go down a hallway, and computer graphics kind of shot of of uh, these three doors and these three portals. And that wireframe then fades into actual footage um, of the hydrolators, which are just behind the doors that are about to open. I always loved that scene because it was just like it took you from fantasy and future to something that was right in front of you and with that the doors open we welcome you to the living seas we welcome you to sea base alpha sea base alpha to surface control all hydrolators pressurized prepare for boarding 10-4 sea base hydrolators now boarding for departure to visitor center at sub-level 5 we are now at the point probably the most well-known portion uh, of the of the living scenes pavilion, and that's that's the hydrolators. So, how you want to give it a what, what were the hydrolators? Huh? So, 
so the hydrolators cool. <laughs> the hydrolators did two things one uh it really solved that problem of of guest flow but two uh it's how do we give that immersive disney experience that people really craved and take you out of the reality that you're in and put you into a completely different reality. Right. And, and the hydrolators were the gag that really did that. Um, so if you're supposed to be under the sea and you know, you walked in a flat door, like how do you just walk into an undersea sea base? doesn't make any sense. So, so the hydrolators were a conceptual way to get people from the top floor of where you were to what is it like 150 or 160 feet below sea level or something yeah, i think yeah. that was the <laughs> Somewhere idea there. uh so when you would walk into this room uh you would see the three doors uh, they were you've heard the word uh hydrolator like mentioned several times and there's kind of a rocky grotto with uh open water in front of all of them so when those doors open up you hear some little voiceover thing say about the hydrolators are are active and ready to go and uh these bubbles form in the water uh at the base of these things so you have this feeling like they've ascended from the sea uh the door opens up you step inside there are uh large windows on the sides with rocks and bubbles that you can see uh and then they load about 30 people or so inside and the doors close and the floor starts to shake and the lights go down and there's these sounds. And then you see the rocks sort of flying by the windows with the bubbles and you're in there for about 30 seconds. And sure enough, you uh, completely nailed the illusion that, uh, that you were going down into some, uh, into some undersea place. Control clear. 10-4 control. CBS alpha clear. Service control, this is guest vehicle staging area number one. GBSA number one, go ahead please. Passengers from hydrolator number two, ready for departure to sea base Alpha Visitor Center. All conditions. Even, even on video, it, it's, it looks amazingly convincing. Oh yeah, I was convinced when I would. Oh, you were you were totally taken for. Oh yeah, you know, because I saw this video, my my life's over. This is a horrible day already, and then you're like, whoa, wait a second. You're a little kid, by the way. That's that ride could be scary. (laughs) That hydrolator ride was a little. Well, you just got scared out of your pants with volcanoes erupting and lightning and thunder. (laughs) Yeah, so now you're going down there. But I was gonna say it was just an absolutely brilliant illusion. Uh, So simply done. They're basically just the floor. The floor shook a little bit too to add right. to the illusion and we have to add that this this waiting area was immaculately clean it was blues and grays it had that rubber texture floor with those little circular spots on it ladies and gentlemen when the hydrolator doors have opened completely take small children by the hand and watch your step as you board and please move all the way into the hydrolator to allow room so how I, I think one of the other things that made the illusion work so well was on the side of the of the hydrolyzer in there. I think on all four corners there were these lights that showed you apparently what level you were on. You start at the surface level, and, right. you, and then the light would change to crew quarters, lab services, and your final destination was the observation level. And what things. was on the sides? You know, it looks like rocks. Like, is it just like like a, on a conveyor? That's yeah, it exactly. That's exactly what it was. The okay. rocks were on conveyor. They were synchronized with each other, um, and uh, it was just kind of this. What's the type of rock that you see the lines in? Uh, um, like sedimentary? 
Sediment, yeah, maybe yeah. sedimentary. Yeah, where you saw these lines and, and these. And it was, you know, there was water and bubbles. Yeah, and, that's right. Yeah, the was, bubbles did it because they increased. It was almost as if you were pushing the air that was there away, and they were coming up in the side. They did and the, some the like rumble. The, I remember the floor would move probably only about a half inch or an inch in each direction, just kind of shake under your feet in a circular pattern, go back and forth a little bit, a little left, a little right. The whole thing together was was totally immersive. Yeah, so and it was it fooled every. I mean, it it I really legitimately fooled people. We made initial contact on C four Block two thousand. Neptune one, uh, we copy. We'll ten five to lab services. Please hold present position until confirmation of report. Ten four base. We'll hold present. Now, I have to. We're going to bust another myth here too. Um, there has been talk that there was a lawsuit. Because people's eardrums ruptured from the no. depth. Now this is this is the rumor. Apparently, Marty Sklar, um, he said there's a story going around that somebody was going to sue Disney for damage to his eardrums because of the change in pressure when he went down in the hydrolator. And he goes, I can't wait for that one. So that was the first story of that ever coming out. Um, and basically, you know, he, he he was just kind of joking. So. The research that yesterdayland.com has done said there was no additional articles ever. The guy searched um, a database of, of legal documents and and uh, newspaper articles and couldn't come up with anything. So get off the hydrolators, and um, we're now in another queue. And again, to our listeners here, think about this. You've seen the sign. You've walked in. You went through history in, in the switchback. You saw a pre-show. You saw a movie. Seven and a half minute pre-show. <laughs> Seven and a half minute pre-show, right. A, film, anyway. another, a, a couple walked in. You've now waited in line for the hydrolators. Um, and now you're, you see a sign that says, now boarding to Seabase Alpha. Yeah. Um, and this is what remained of the uh, original idea of those those bubbles that we talked about, the Omnimovers. There's this nice orange sign blinking, and the sea cabs are pretty much your regular run-of-the-mill uh, Omnimover. Um, you'll you'll get it's a moving platform, uh, just like many other Omnimover rides, and uh, the cast member there would direct you to what is their seat, what they call the sea cabs. Yes, and Todd, if you ask the cast member nicely, they might put you in a special sea cab. Which one's that? That would be the Roy's Sea Cabin. Uh, oh, well, I like that. That's good. <laughs> was it brown? Not blue it's like the, the other ones. Out. It stood out. It had like log cabin lines. It was. It was. It. it was slightly smaller than all of its brother cabins. <laughs> <laughs> and he only used it once. <laughs> yeah, only can use it. Um, I remember them really slow. I mean, the, the yes, the track wasn't very long. It wasn't very very short. But I think they ran them much slower so that you could see. The sea creatures, and also because if they ran any faster, you'd be off the thing. <laughs> Forty-five seconds, right? Um, but it, it took almost five minutes. So you would there was a moving walkway, and uh, you, you'd get into your, your what they called the sea cab, um, and and you would hear this audio of uh, Commander Fulton. in and out now and then he has to take a phone call and uh, he comes back and tells you a little bit about what you're going to see and um, this is where I don't know if this is a myth or, or but people probably think that the original Living Seas ride 
was longer than the seas with Nemo, and and that's actually incorrect. They expanded the track when they converted the attraction to the seas with Nemo. In fact, the first portion of the ride uh, now goes into where Theater One was. Uh, so the Theater One we talked about in the very beginning, where they showed, um, has been basically that was all ripped out, and the track where you start to go in and see you know the different scenes at the beginning of Nemo are now in, in where Theater 1 was. Um, and Theater 2 w- it was converted to Turtle Talk with Crush. So now, as, as, as those of you that have been on the seas with Nemo, as you know, as soon as you load, it, the cars turn to the right and you go through and see the reef. Where's Nemo? There's a search for Dory and Marlin. You go through the jellyfish, the pretty lights, the anglerfish, and you come up to the encounter of, of Bruce. Um, where that encounter of Bruce is and when you start to go into the EAC... That is essentially the beginning of the ride after you load it um, in, in the original incarnation of, of the Omnimover track. So if you think about riding that, that attraction now from the EAC directly to the end, um, is, it was the entire attraction. It's really into the center of the tank. You go around about 270 degrees and, and you come back. And the thing to remember uh, is that you had a, a full view. Right. I mean, it was it was open at the top. There there was nothing covered. It wasn't just one side. So you got the illusion that you were at really at the bottom of the aquarium moving through it. Right. And there's sharks swimming around over top of you and all it was really Did neat. it go straight, like you know how Nemo goes like you're only facing one side? Did it like go like you were facing forward like Haunted Mansion? For most of that ride, or I believe the, the the cars didn't even turn; they were always facing straight. Correct me yeah. if I'm wrong. How That's the way correct. you were going, yeah. right. they were always facing straight. So if you, when you were going into the tunnel, so really, what you think about this is two tunnels. It was one tunnel to get you into the center of the tank, and another to take you out. So when you went into the first tunnel, which is now where the EAC is, you were. If you look to your left, you'd you'd see the fish. If you look to the right, you'd see the fish, and if you looked above, you'd see the fish. Yeah. And actually, today, if when you go through the EAC and also other parts of the attraction, including Big Blue World, when you get up there, look up above you. And if you look up, there has been pieces of plywood and blackout tape and all sorts of other stuff that are actually on the inside there covering yeah. the tank that's still there. Uh, and if you know where to look when you're upstairs on the observation level, you look down and you can see that it's been blacked out. The, the blackout panels aren't perfect. And if you look in the right spots, you can see some of the blue color of the water and the lights above yeah. still shining through. It, it's really a shame that so much of the original ride has been blocked out. It, it, it irks me. I understand what they did and why they did it, but um, yeah, I, 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 I don't really like that. So, so next time you're on it, you know, look up during the EAC scene where you know where you're supposedly going along with with uh, Crush there, uh, and take a look up. There's a and, big difference too, though. Wasn't weren't these cars from the video I saw like no roof whatsoever? Like right. they were like fully right. open. They were open. Yeah, they were open. So that changes everything too, because you have fully open sides, top, and then three windows to look through as well. Correct, and and I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they seated four to five, right? Weren't they? Were they? I can't remember if they were the two old ones. Or, yeah, the sea cabs were like two, maybe three, if you squeeze a small child in. Between. Yeah, it was one. It was one row of seats. Oh, it was it was one row? Okay, I couldn't remember. Yeah. If it was one or two. Yeah, it was one row of seats. Now, are they the same cars that have the clams attached to them, or did they totally? Well, JT, everything? if you go and look at your attraction vehicles poster that yes. we got back from episode whatever <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're on there and you can you can get a good look at them but yeah they they uh they were not they did not have the shell on the back no 
No, well, no, I know they didn't, but did they when well, they given, added the shell? Are we riding the original? No, that's a, no. No, that's a new that's a new ride. Vehicle. They needed much more because the track. Uh, if you look at the the blueprints, I'm going to guess the track didn't double, but you probably added about no, no, another seventy percent of track. You know, somewhere in there. So the, the amount of cars. Now, if you think about this from a a visitor per hour perspective, too, right? When Disney converted the to seas with Nemo, they can certainly squeeze a lot more people on that ride. Sure. Um, you've you've got you know a much better uh, throughput of the attraction. So right, and so, it changed from a forward view to a side view. Side view, right, yeah. right. Which is why so when you're going through the EAC tunnel, we said look up. If you could look behind you, that's all been blacked out too. Um, and and also too, what happened is when you took the the, the tunnel into the center of the tank. You used to be able to look and see if you looked across, you could see the other cars exiting the tank. So it was this big open area, and you could look all around, kind of like a 360 degree view of in the center cylinder, so to speak, in the center of the tank. Again, majority of it has been blacked out with these small little windows out to uh, that the tank when they project the big blue world scene. Um, and just as you unload today, you come you're unloading in one of the other tunnel that's coming out of the tank, and um, the other thing to do is remember they talk about the main tank. It is cut up into a couple different sections with metal grates. You can you can look for those, and that's pretty much so the sharks and the dolphins get along. But you can tell that when you're when you're. Uh, I don't know if you can tell anymore though, but you got to look carefully. All right. So as you exit and uh, uh, unload from from the sea cabs, you are now in in Sea Base Alpha, which is a um, supposedly supposed to be an underwater research, research facility, and and you've been granted access to their to their visitor center. Um, for those <laughs> bunch of, you, of muggles running around, <laughs> <laughs> just keep them to the visitor center. Don't let them go behind the seats. Um, so, for those of you that have not been there um, or, or have not visited the seas with Nevo, it's a basically a, about two and a half story open area. It's hugely cavernous, um, and, and at the time it was painted in these fantastic whites and grays, accented by blues and oranges. You know, had fake docking bay doors and numbers on them, and gray grates and it really gave it looked exactly what every sci-fi movie would (laughs) convince you that an undersea base would look like right right doors and 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 and, you know big tube of water in the middle yeah yes i mean it's just like whoa where am i like you know it reminded me a little bit of the star tours like boarding areas too i think they share some similarities right in design field there and one of the similarities was the cast members wearing jumpsuits. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> very official-looking jumpsuits. Yeah. And, they and, were part of the team, and you weren't. But correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, there was, you know, the land, you take the land for what it was, but this was so immersive that you felt as if you were really, really there. And then the, the, the whole thing leading up to it and getting there really i think i think it was totally pulled off yeah i mean and the difficulty in the land obviously is you walk in and there's a food court in the center <laughs> and it's, it's yeah. very hard to immerse anybody when they're walking through the you know the local mall food court yeah kids on their field trip like right yeah. there it's exactly. but yeah this you had such a build-up to go and you're like oh my god it's still happening but i'm in the heart of the research center now right and then you, you've got the opportunity to take the elevator or the escalator or the stairs up to the observation levels and there's all these little circular rooms off to the side that had all of their own different things going on in them and there were total of what i never even realized this but there were different what they called modules there were six different modules and each of these modules in these circular rooms um were dedicated to different specific topics too so 
We're going to talk about the tank, though, first, because JT's got some tank facts. Tank facts. Tank facts. So the, this, the Living Sea's main tank, which we just talked about, you went through, but from the lower level, you went through it on the Omnimover uh, in your sea cab. And also, if you went up to the second floor, you could go out and, and look into, into the main tank, and you would take another tunnel that would follow the path of the, of the previous tunnel we talked about, and you could go into the center and walk in a 360-degree um, view of the, of the water in there. So, uh, JT, what do you got for us with the... With the you know, it, I was when I was looking through these, it just kind of some of this like okay, they're just numbers. But when I give you some other little tidbits here, it really is yeah. crazy. Um, Five point seven million gallons of water, which until two thousand five, I believe, was the largest right um, indoor uh, whatever you want to call it, like man-made right. aquarium. And Brian, who who eclipsed that? You you, you looked up who it was eclipsed by, right? Georgia, the Georgia, Georgia aquarium back in two thousand five. I'm going to yep. say that very unsure, sure, but I think it's 2005. Didn't Disney have like a marketing thing with that? They did. Now you're going to see if I get it wrong. The sixth, the world's sixth ocean. Yes. Yes. Sixth. <laughs> yeah. Somebody's um, going to write in. Well, technically, it's the seventh. It's <laughs> no, no, no. I think it was the sixth. The world's sixth ocean is what they called it when it opened. <laughs> yeah. Um, Two hundred and three feet uh, diameter on the big one there 27 feet deep um i i thought this was interesting for some reason this seemed hot to me 74 and 78 degrees between those two is the temperature to me i felt like it'd be much colder but i don't know much about this sort of thing so well, judging that it, it is based on caribbean i know that the water temperature down there can get in the 80s so that's probably for that depth of water it's probably about right mm-hmm. okay um, I thought this part was cool too. They actually, when they filled it originally, and I have a question for you guys who are more experts than me on this, but they filled it with fresh water to start. And then to make it uh, salt water, they filled it with 27 truckloads of salt, 400 tons of magnesium chloride, and then 300 tons of magnesium sulfite. And then over 10 days, they mixed, they churned, they did all this stuff, and then it magically reached the correct mix uh, in October of 85. Has it ever been emptied? I don't know the answer to that. I do know. I don't believe so. So uh, that's like the original water. I mean, obviously well, they replenished no. I mean, it, but you know. It's, it's, so I do know uh, that, and I, I don't know if the number is four or six, but there are four or six, and I want to say the number is six, six wells on property that they pump water out of uh, and into the living seas ocean or into whatever formulates the salt water that makes that then goes into the living seas ocean. Okay, so if you're standing and you know you take your your fingers and you sort of make like an inch, I thought it was crazy that one inch in this whole uh, tank is equal to eighteen thousand gallons of water. So is that uh, up and down or left and up, like a up cubic, and down, a like, cubic inch from top to bottom? Yeah. So say you, I'm sorry, seventeen thousand. So you start at the bottom. Say you start like at the bottom, which by the way, that gravel is thirty three inches thick. You start at the very bottom of the thing and you add a, like one inch of water. Like, you know, if you're filling your bathtub an inch, that takes 17,000 gallons to do one inch. And go up to a total of six inches, that would fill up an entire Olympic-sized swimming pool. Crazy. That's, that's nuts, yeah. 
It's just yeah. I almost you know what you wish is like they hung these facts up like on the wall in there or something so you could just see. Well, this you're stuff. under the ocean. They can't tell you how much mortar's in the ocean. I get <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, total of sixty one windows uh, allowed for viewing. Now, do you think that includes the windows that are now blacked out? Oh, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, and um, this is one of those interesting facts too. When you're standing in there looking, like say you're out in that observation area, um, the acrylic panels—they're acrylic. Uh, actually, all of it's acrylic, but uh, six to eight inches thick. So if you're kind of standing there wondering how thick, six to eight inches. You could probably do that with just a half an inch of transparent aluminum, if Scotty uh. gave you the formula. <laughs> but you have to wait till Star Trek Four comes out to know about that. Now, JT, if they develop any small hole, is RJ Ogren good? Is he going to come like fashion a little starfish to octopus <laughs> or something? Over? He could, but I'm sure that the rumored crack in it was done by our friend who backed into the thing with a truck or a trolley. <laughs> That's what he stepped on Michael Jackson's foot and backed into the living seas at the same time. Um, the one of the things too that's crazy to me: there's a, a massive filtration system and. Uh, you know, huge tubes and pipes and the whole deal. But I thought this was crazy that um, the the whole process it recycles the entire six point two five million gallons every roughly three hours. It all gets recycled and filtered and goes in and out. I just that's crazy to me that it's. I, I'd love to know the electric bill just for the living seas and what that costs. Yeah, that's that's insane. So that's that's a lot of uh, facts. Oh, the last one I thought this was crazy. Last one, sorry. Um, if you took the uh, spaceship Earth, you picked it up and you set it down inside the living seas. You pulled the roof off, dropped it in there. It would fit inside the tank, and it would have uh, roughly ninety feet on the so- on uh, you know on this one side to just fully fit inside there. Now it wouldn't be submersed like you dropped a golf ball in the tank, but it would fit inside there. So just picture that next time you're standing next to yep. uh, Spaceship Earth. Just Actually, like about 40 feet. Spaceship Earth is 164 and the seas is 203. So yeah, we got about 40 feet or 20. 40 feet. Yeah, 20 feet all 20 around. feet on each side. On each side. That's insane. So you can float it like an ice cube. So just drop that puppy in there. Yeah, there, then there is a market that I think we should. We need Spaceship Earth uh, ice cubes for our drinks. That would be. I'm so gonna make Living Seas tank glasses. Yes, and then boom. The right ratio. That is perfect. All right, next They'll next item for sale. And they they will all sit on a land boat coaster. Right. I love it. A serving love tray. It. Yeah, I think we got. Them. We'll get. We'll we'll corner the market. So that's my tank facts. There's tank facts from JT. Many Thanks. more, but they, those were the highlights. And I just that now next time I go, I'm going to have a new appreciation because I've never read these before. So. Well, like you said, the, the numbers are one thing. But when you put them into some sort of context, it really amazes you how, how, how large it is. Yeah, it is, and it's, it, uh, it's huge. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a heck of an undertaking. I, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was cool too. I saw a picture and I was doing research um, under construction. Like, you know, you saw like an overhead view with no roof and it even had like the little circular cylindrical viewing area just in the middle. But just crazy how big it is. Just Yeah. I the- didn't realize there were 33 inches of gravel. That's that's pretty nuts. Well, that's all part of the filtration system, actually. The, that gravel right. is actually an integral part of the filtration. Uh, it's like so a big aquarium, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things that I, that just to like put this in perspective. So we talk about how Atlanta is now the biggest one and this is the second biggest one. Like the third biggest one is only like 3 million gallons 
And then the rest of the really super impressive ones throughout the world are usually about like a million to a million and a half gallons. So this thing is still a beast comparatively. Yeah, and it's probably worth noting at this point that when it opened, it was so much more massive than anything else that existed. Uh, That even though there were aquariums around the country, uh, you know, San San Diego, there were a ton of them in Florida. Baltimore had opened up five years before this one did. Uh, Nothing, absolutely nothing on the scale of this one. Right. So, and we've been concentrating on the tank here, but there were a lot of other things going on too in these these other modules. So um, we're going to briefly kind of run through some of these modules and there's a couple of them that I know JT's familiar with. I, I'm, I'm very familiar with them. I'm sure some of our listeners have, will remember them. So uh, the first one was e- Ocean Ecosystems and um, they had all sorts of uh, kelp growing. I remember the kelp grew from the first floor to the second floor. I think it was growing all the way up. Kelp was huge at Epcot, wasn't it? It, it was, between Horizons and this <laughs> place. <laughs> kelp. Seaweed. Kelp. Um, there was a predator tank that had uh, groupers and barracudas. Um, speaking of groupers, it, it, I, I thought his name was Oscar, but remember in the main tank there was a huge grouper? And no. he used to come around and make his appearance every now and then. Yeah. I remember oh. it was delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my grandparents actually asking about it. I believe his name was Oscar. So if any listeners out there can confirm or deny that. A picture great. of Oscar, maybe tweet at us. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there was uh, photoplankton and zooplankton and all sorts of filter feeders in this area. Um, and then um, we also had module 1B was uh, underwater viewing of the manatees. So that was on the right-hand side because we also had the above ground. Okay, but... Um, if this is 1986, there are not manatees there. No. What was there, How There were sea lions. Really? Sea lions and dolphins were the main attraction <clears throat> in 1986. Because they were doing scientific research. in, uh, in tri- For the dolphins, they were doing scientific research with hydrophones attached to computers to try to see if the computers could figure out what the dolphins were saying so that we, we could actually communicate with dolphins. Now, um, is that for real? That is for real. That So this wasn't like fake MGM studios, like where they're pretending, were they doing real research here? Like, Yes, they were really doing was. real. One of the, uh, one of the main ideas in the, uh, of this futuristic thing was, was to have dolphins and sea lions as companions to human divers actually working together in this 21st century space. And uh, they had real research that they were doing trying to like break down the communication barrier between dolphins and humans, which seems absolutely crazy to us, but it was a, since, since well, a computer was new and could process audio, they thought maybe they could crack the nut. I'm going to talk about what we did when I went to the top of the tank years ago under the deep program. And it was similar, not as crazy, but I'll, I'll explain what we, what we did back we did back then when we went up there. So, all right. So interesting tidbit, sea lions as well. Um, module 1C was the Earth system. This had a small little um, kind of theater in it with an animated video. Um, there was uh, samples uh, showing us how to, about the Earth's core, anatomy of the sea, and the sea-based link terminals were there, which were um, how you may know them better than I. I don't. Re- I don't recall them. Yeah, I, I'll tell you that. Uh, that that film it was called the Animated Atlas of the World, and it yep. was actually a great uh, seven and a half minute fully animated 
piece uh, back when Disney was doing a ton of animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I tried to track down some info today, uh, and that might have been jobbed out. And I may have a line to someone who worked on it, so I'm going to keep working okay. to do that. Are the same forces that created this planet over the last four and a half billion years still at work today? perhaps still driving, moving and changing the planet we live on. Though we may not always see or feel these changes. I do. Atlas? Yo. What's the matter? You seem a bit shaky. Hey, you think it's easy carrying the weight of the world around on your shoulders? (gasps) The narrator on that was uh, a guy that you may remember from the TV show Bewitched who played Dr. Bombay. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. Uh, Bernard Fox is his name. Bernard Fox. Mm. And uh, Atlas was played by the show writer and director, a guy by the name of Mike West, mm. uh, who was also the voice of uh, G24T in Star Tours. And now you may frequently see him on YouTube and other places uh, pitching the King Kong ride because he now works for Universal Creative and he's uh, one of the creative directors there. There was also a neat map of the Earth, too. Remember that guy? You press the buttons. You'd show you the ring of fire, different lights lights on the Earth. Oh, yeah. would illuminate when you press the button. Really interactive. Where is that this, Mariana's Trench? This gives you an idea. We're only talking about the fourth module of these circular rooms here. And there, were a lot, there was a lot going on. I'm sorry, we're only in the third. We're going to talk about the fourth, which is probably the one that everybody remembers to this day and probably it's the same room where people remember where bruce is now yeah you you couldn't you couldn't pose and bruce the shark's mouth back then no there was no bruce (laughs) so we had two cool things in here that everybody's gonna remember um one of them was an auto animatronic version of jason and jason was an underwater uh robotic uh, exploration tool that was created by bob ballard And he was, um, this audio animatronics version was, uh, he was on a pole coming from behind and he could go up and down and his arms would move around and the lights and his would simulate talking and he would talk to you and his hands would move around and tell you about uh, underwater exploration. Uh, and probably the part that most people remember is the gym suit, which was a giant underwater pressurized suit that um, it was cut in half from the back and you could walk behind it, put your hands into the arms and grip these kind of these special grips inside. And um, you put your head up into the bowl. And most kids had to stand on something, I think, to, to kind of look into yeah, yeah. How the, the, the helmet portion of it. And in front of you were four different things. There was a, a lever, a slide, a wheel, and, and, and something else, a push button. And, and the, the object was to put your hands inside the suit and realize how cumbersome it was and how your dexterity was really changed by putting you know, by, by wearing the suit. And you were supposed to try to turn the levers and spin the wheels, etc., and, and turn the lights from red to, to green. Um, I know I tried. You guys all must have climbed into that thing. It was a germ pit, but... Totally. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So do you want nice. to hear some crazy stuff about those those exhibits? Yeah. So you mentioned so you mentioned Bob Ballard. Yeah. Uh, so that Jason thing was actually a real thing that he yep. was working on prior to uh, 
prior to the um, the debut of the Living Seas. He had been developing that JSON system as a real thing, uh, and he uh, so we opened it. That opened in January of 1986, right? Yes, yes. And in June of 1986, he took a prototype of it called Jason Jr. down to a little ship called the Titanic. And the first video that any of us ever saw of the Titanic was actually shot through one of those Jason systems. So so the discovery of the Titanic uh, then made a film director a billionaire <laughs> who then took that money to make Avatar, which is now transforming Animal Kingdom. So it really all started at the Living Seas. Yeah, I think this is six degrees of Living Seas. Yeah. And Kevin Bacon wrote it's like Kevin the uh, <laughs> sea cab. And Michael Jackson sold him the uh, Disney's <laughs> ice cream bar. Gave him the energy for the day. And as a, as a total aside, the voice of Jason was Frank Welker. From Scooby Doo and a thousand other things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That. Um, now the gym suits. Yeah, um, those are actually those. That's was a real thing uh, developed by Dr. Sylvia Earle, one of the consultants for the Living Seas Pavilion, and she actually set a, a world depth record of uh, twelve hundred fifty feet in that thing wow. uh, in nineteen seventy nine. It was actually engineered for commercial purposes. It was used for uh, like repair and maintenance of oil rigs underwater. Um, and that suit in particular is really awesome because it's fully pressurized to just one atmosphere. So no matter how deep down you went, uh, it just felt like normal. And so they didn't have to pump helium in or anything else right. into into the nitrogen. All that didn't have to be added to the to the airline. Yeah, it was all self-contained. Uh, and it would keep a temperature of about 50 degrees. So you could just wear a warm sweater and you could be down there for like four or five, six hours untethered yeah. and do what you needed to do. That's cool. very cool. I, yeah. I have another Titanic fact to wedge in here. Go ahead. Bernard Fox, the voice of the film you mentioned a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. played Colonel Archibald Gracie in the Titanic movie. He's the woman that he's the man that said, women and technology do not mix. That's what I always say. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, and there was another little movie in that section with a father and son fish combination years mm-hmm. before Nemo. That's right. Um, there was a little movie in there called Suited for the Sea. Uh, another animated thing, uh, a little short film uh, that would explain the evolution of the diving suit. Uh, and there was a great little section where they talk about Heliox and avoiding the bends, uh, where a diver actually dies and gets like the little lily that he holds up. And like sinks down to the bottom in like that classic fashion. <laughs> My favorite part. Uh, and uh, there was a catchy song in there called "The Nitrogen Boogie," that was written by uh, George Wilkins and Scott Hennessy, who wrote all the music for uh, Kitchen Cabaret. Oh wow! And uh, that was sung by B.J. Ward, who was also the voice of the uh, diving instructor in Sea Castle on Horizons. And uh, on the load and unload belts and a couple other places in there. So there's a bunch of little connections. Look at that. It's pretty cool. So I'm going to give, I want to tell people what things are now. So if they're imagining what we've walked through. Um, Everything now is a gift shop. Every- <laughs> <laughs> so if you are, you know, the, the we talked about the different modules. Module 1A um, which, as we talked about, had all the different uh, has lots of aquariums and, and had the, the sea creatures and, and, and the uh, different moves. 
Um, that is now the waiting area for um, Turtle Talk with Crush, where you go in, it's the first little area. Uh, module 1D, which is the one where we talked where the gym suit and Jason is, that's where Bruce is. Um, module 1B hasn't really changed, that's over on the far right hand side, that's where you can now see the manatees. And module 1C, I'm trying to remember what is what is in there now. Does anybody remember? That would be where the theater was, where the little movie in the in the Earth was. Oh, uh, what is in yeah, there? There's yeah, some other, there's some other exhibits in there. I think that is that where the uh, like the fish that are in Finding Nemo and the little tanks are in. So there's like oh, a yeah. tank of clownfish. Yeah, the clownfish, clownfish and, and stuff are in there. Okay, so so now as as you can today, you can climb up the stairs, and as we know now, it's just a big blue behemoth of ugly blue paint, and all that wonderful design is gone. Um, but if you, if you, as you're going up the stairs, look at the ceiling and look at all the details. Those details have not changed since since its opening, and you have to imagine that place having a completely different color scheme. Um, it would really come to life again if they if they ever did that. Um, so when you go up to level two, your options are a little more limited. Um, but you can go over to 2A, which is, remember, we talked about the kelp. Now the kelp is coming up through the floor, and it's growing all the way up to the to level 2. Um, they've got underwater, underwater farming. Um, this marine biologist would be there to talk about questions. There were some more sea-based link terminals. Um, there were sea-based challenge terminals. So you, you, you know, ask you questions and press the, the letter or the answer. Um, and, um, somewhere there was a touch tank. I can't remember where that was, but there was a touch tank. Some, I don't know if it was on the top floor or the bottom floor. Um, in module 2B, you'd walk over and was the top side of the, uh, um, <clears throat> of, of the manatees or the sea lions, uh, back then. Uh, now how many have ever been up to level three? Not, Enjoy. not I. Not I. Okay. So I, no, I don't even know there was a level three. I, I think you were up there, Todd. I was up there. I went up there in 1986. They had something called uh, um, Deep, which was Dolphin Exploration and Education Program. Uh, it was three hours. I think we paid about 45 bucks to go up there. You had to be older than 16. Um, now, what, what's interesting is how you mentioned the research that they were doing prior, um, you know, with dolphins when it first started. They were quote unquote still doing research, but it was different. They had this what they called the dolphin keyboard setup. And essentially it was this giant plastic house-shaped thing with these holes in it. It was yellow and the holes were black. And in the center of the holes, there were these objects that were suspended with wire. And the quote-unquote keyboard would be red if, an, if a dolphin stuck their nose in it. Um, there were sensors. So they would say, um, you know, go find me the, the ball, you know. And, and certain objects in there weren't what they were where they really were. So if you asked for a herring, um, it may have been a sand dollar and because they didn't want them to have associations with shapes and stuff. So they they could change it out and, and change the keyboard. But the idea was that some of the objects represented nouns, some of them represented words, conjunctions, all sorts of different things so they could try to quote unquote communicate with a dolphin. And your job as a as a guest researcher was to, you know, you got this booklet, which I still have, I'll have to dig it out. Uh, and you were going to record as they did these experiments. Um, it was interesting. You went back into the classrooms and you talked to them. And, and what we would also do is they, they took you up. Um, you walked into the center on level two. You went up into the center um, of the observation in the tank. And they took you up in a staircase that kind of wound its way up to the to the level. And you walked out on a, on a gangplank out towards the, um, 
the different areas where they where they work with the dolphins and the dolphins would come up on this kind of shore that they have up there it was really cool to be on top of the tank and you realize how many lights and different things are, are are up there so you can now do some sort of disney's dolphins in depth where i think you just i don't know they come up to you and you stand on the coral reef and they smile and pose and charge you money um and you can also you can still scuba dive in there which was going on at the time uh, back then as well I told you how you could get up to level three. What's the other way of getting down from level three? We oh, haven't talked about it yet. Got to be the uh, the scuba tube in the lockout chamber. The lockout chamber in the scuba tube. Yeah. Mm. How you want to talk about that? Oh, this is this is like one of those great sci-fi things. I, uh, in reality, this thing was completely impractical. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> The uh, there was a show that I think it would probably happen what about every half hour or so? Yeah, somewhere in there. So you'd have a diver uh, in a suit, uh, ready to go. Uh, that would start to tell you about the uh, that they're welcoming the person in, and then a person would the tube would kind of fill up with water or be filled up with water, and then a diver would come down the tube uh, and descend to the bottom of it. And they'd flip some switches, and all the water would drain out of the tube, and then the diver would be standing in a, you know, in just air, and they would open up the door and come out, and then and the door had be- all these like fake bolts on it, like this thing was like <laughs> yeah. super. Well, it had to be watertight, but right. he was standing in. It looked like he, he was standing in a, um, you know, like a, a American standard, um, portable like a shower with a yeah. door on it, right? And there was, like, <laughs> there was a metal grate on the bottom. And, and, uh, and then the uh, the person that was talking, they would switch the the person that just came out would take a microphone, and uh, and then the, the person that was there would go up in the tube, and then you would look out into the tank, and then you would see the person swimming out in the tank as if they had come up through this thing. Right. Now, if you look at an overhead map of it, you'll realize that the diver lockout chamber in this four-foot tube we're talking about is probably about 50, 60 feet away from the actual tank. Yeah. But the idea was that... The, the idea was that again you were below the surface of the ocean you were on the ocean floor so this diver the lockout was locking them out from the ocean when they went up to, into the quote unquote ceiling they were actually entering uh, into into the ocean and they'd swim over the top of the of the sea base and down you know in, into this observation area what, what really happened <laughs> the reality they, is they would run the <laughs> across the gangplank and jump in on the other side jump in oh. on the side there were a number there's a number of different um I don't want to call them zero entry, but I guess you could, kind of could. Uh, there, there are areas up there where the water kind of sloshes up into an area where the divers can can easily get in. So, but um, all right. Now, before we get to some of the other features of the Living Seas that are in another portion of the building, um, it's time to leave the actual um, pavilion now. But don't forget, we are underwater, so we have to follow over the signs to the sea base exit and um there's three hydrolator doors because don't forget if you go down you've got to come back up and uh there was a, a the sign which again that adding to the experience that you were not you were somewhere else was the you know the living seas exit to epcot center because you weren't you weren't in epcot you went down to a research facility so you want to go back out to epcot i hope right and bless them for doing this because how many rides today have some kind of opening thing where you're part of an elaborate story and you go on the ride, but then when you're done, you just step off the ride into a gift shop and there's no thought to that right. process of bringing you back. So exactly, n- nicely done, gentlemen. Yep. And uh, once the doors would open, you'd move into a hydrolator. Now these hydrolators were different. They were 
oddly they were larger um apparently according to some stuff that i've read i will have to check on that um they didn't have windows and the trip back to the surface went much quicker <laughs> it wasn't nearly as long i don't believe the floor shook either um, now the floor did shake there too oh it did shake there okay yeah I, and I, there I, was I, there was instead of the side windows there was a different gag uh portal yeah in the top mm-hmm. um you could see sort of like water and a shimmery light as if you were in a tall tube and as you moved closer to the surface like the light would get brighter to look as if you were getting uh, closer to the surface. Uh, yeah. So I don't know if they just like expanded an iris and made the light bigger or if they actually just brightened it or what it was, but it worked. It was cool. It did work. It did work. And as that happened, um, we heard this. Thank you for visiting Seabase Alpha and exploring the wonders of the living seas. Please come back and visit us again soon. There's always something new and exciting for you to discover here at Seabase Alpha. Uh, so, yeah, and I guess the other option, too, uh, was that if you didn't want to, there was always a door right next to it. You could <laughs> blow the effect uh, completely out of the water, pun intended. All right. So... There's more to the living seas, though, than just this. Stuffed on the right-hand side, way back in an area that, as Brian says, why would you put it back there? You can't even tell it's there. Was the cor- And it still is the Coral Reef Restaurant. Now, Brian, I know you've got information on that. You love – I've eaten there many times. I think it's a great, great spot. There's also some VIP stuff back there. But what, do you, what have you got on this? Yeah, the living seas, is, as you alluded to, I call it the restaurant you can't find unless you're looking for it. <laughs> uh, the coral reef, rather. Uh, and and it's, it is when you come into the, you know, the main entrance area where the rocks are sloshing out. It's all the way around the side on the right. Um, and you head around there and you walk into a very small, dimly lit, well-appointed lobby uh, with all the traditional blue, hues of blue uh, ocean colors. And there's someone there to greet you at the desk and you tell them you're you're there to be seated. And they bring you into a three-tiered dining room. Uh, and the three tiers are there so that you can get a good look at the aquarium, which there is a full wall of, of aquarium glass that takes up one side of the restaurant. That's where all the tables face. There are booths that face it and then tables that are sideways so that everybody gets a good view of it. And in the olden days, Todd actually has, we last year at RetroCon, we displayed, uh, there was a, a booklet that they would give you, a little, yeah. little paper handout where you could identify the actual fish in the aquarium. And it would, and it was just like a fish finder sheet that would tell you some of the fish to look for in the aquarium. Now, is that so you could pick out your dinner? <laughs> well, <laughs> That that is one of the ironies is that uh, is is that uh, it happens a lot in seafood restaurants. You're at an aquarium, and half of the menu is seafood because uh, you're looking out on at these the, the lovely oceanic life, thinking that's delicious. It's kind of like going to a zoo and them offering you uh, elephant and lion and panda bear for lunch, if, you know. Uh, but yeah, so so you can sit there and so that the the restaurant has always been a kind of uh, moderate. But not necessarily upscale, but um, but not cheap either. You know? no, so it's no. kind of kind of moderate plus, I would say. And they they have they have some interesting um, menu offerings. I remember when we went there in two thousand three, I believe it was. Um, my father got uh, they had piranha on the menu. Very ah. cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's the first place. Uh, it's served a little more frequently now, but that's yeah. the first place I ever had barramundi. 
Oh yeah, that's a uh, Barramundi was on the menu there yep. uh, probably about ten years ago when right. I went, and 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 now I see it on, on menus more frequently. But back then, I had, I had not seen it before. So anyway, what is Barramundi? Uh, Sorry, it's <laughs> an Aust- it's I Australian. Say, it's an Australian fish. fish yeah. yeah, okay. Uh, it's a white fish. I mean, it's um, but but so uh, that's the that's the ground floor, and it's a fairly popular restaurant. They're open for lunch and dinner. Um. And it's usually not too hard to get a reservation there. Not not as compared to some of the other places because it is the only uh, non-character sit-down restaurant in Future World. Uh, because you have the Garden Grill next door at the Land that has that has the sit-down character meals, but it's the only one that that uh, the sit-down restaurant uh, that doesn't have characters in Future World. So. It's an attraction from that standpoint in the aquarium, but uh, I've never really had a hard time finding a spot in there as compared to say something like La Cellier, yeah, uh, which is very difficult to get a spot in. I think uh, it's a great rush. I always try to go there. I, I really enjoy it. Yeah, I do too. And so on the so so if you look at the glass, I mean, obviously having been in the in the other part of the attraction, you know that the aquarium can be viewed from two different levels. There's the second floor and the first floor. Uh, the same is true of the restaurant. So tucked around on the side when you walk into that lobby, uh, there's also an elevator there. And the elevator, uh, if the cast member, if you tell them you were there back when the p- pavilion opened in 1986, that elevator took you up to the second level, which is where United Technologies VIP uh, sponsor lounge and conference center was. And that operated up there uh, from 1986 to 1991. And then when the recession hit in 1991, United Technologies was looking to uh, cut costs. So they ceased sponsorship of the actual lounge. So even though they continued to sponsor the pavilion for another five or six years, uh, the, the actual lounge became Disney's to kind of do with as they saw fit. Uh, but let me tell you a little bit about the lounge. <clears throat> so on this lounge, uh, you walk in and it is very well, it's actually because it's right over the same footprint as the coral reef. If you're in the coral reef, you get a, you get a sense of what the lounge looks like, except the lounge is a lot richer. There's, there's like mahogany wood and, and, and some accents like that. Uh, but very, very dark, uh, inside so that you get good views of the full wall, uh, into the aquarium. And it's kind of stadium level seating. I almost, uh, it's almost like if you've ever been to a Vegas lounge act, uh, it does have the multiple tiers and the ta- and so it's got some tables and the back tier where in the, in the coral reef restaurant, the third, the third level, uh, would normally be the top set of tables there. They leave it open so that they can set up buffets. Uh, and so the space is rented today. You can rent it, uh, if you wanted to have a wedding or some kind of reception there, it isn't cheap. But it is one of Epcot's unique venues that you can do that. A lot of times they include it on the Undiscovered Future World Tour. So if you ever take that, uh, they generally take you to one of the lounges that doesn't have a corporate sponsor. But since I think only um, only missions, does Mission Space even have a sponsor anymore? I, I, Siemens. Yeah, HP. H, no, I thought HP ended oh, their, their sponsorship Oh, Earth, my fault. Yeah, so... Yeah, Spaceship Earth has one, but I think most of the pavilions no longer have sponsors. So all the lounges are have either been converted to offices in some cases, or uh, 
or uh, are available for rent. So this one's available for rent. The, the other cool thing, the notable thing, and there are photos online. There are videos that give you tours of it online for people who have been there. If you search for the, you know, the Living Seas or uh, VIP Lounge. Uh, but the other cool thing in there that's been there since it opened is it has a clear acrylic piano. So long before Steve Jobs and Apple came up with the translucent iPhone or uh, iMac or Crystal uh, Pepsi was or around. Crystal Pepsi, uh, <laughs> long before all that, this uh, this clear this acrylic translucent uh, piano, full full upright piano, a grand piano actually, uh, sits up there in that lounge. And so if you're really creative and you plan an event there, you'll get a professional piano player to come in and fire those tickle those ivories up. Uh, so. There it is. <laughs> there, there's your there's your brief mention of both the Coral Reef restaurant and uh, the second floor lounge. Yeah. So so apparently when they uh, when they did that, they spared no expense to like build out that lounge. They pumped like tons of money into that because that was going to be a showpiece. And in fact, the uh, the president that I mentioned, uh, what's his name? Sorry, he went all John him. Hammond on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much uh that uh harry gray his uh his office which is now listed as a small conference room had a window that where you could push a button and it would kind of like open up and change and you no could see way. the tank behind it yeah it's like james bond <laughs> very james bond both these places the restaurant and the uh, lounge i've only been inside the restaurant on the lounge they remind me of so much like cruise ship stuff like you know you go to that restaurant on the cruise ship it's got all the nautical stuff and yeah it's it's very cruise shippy to me i think that pretty much wraps up uh the living seas pretty well i i certainly miss the way that it was um even a paint job could change the way and who knows maybe maybe somebody some heads will get screwed on straight again and uh change the way that place looks but boy it's uh, it's just a bit right now yeah, yeah. well I think, it's just I, lost it's i think the trick is everything that was in there when it was built in 86 really was super high tech mm-hmm. cutting edge um but even that stuff as the approach the 90s uh a lot of those like the gym suits had fallen out of fashion there was a new suit called the wasp that took over right uh that technology all changed so you right. know it's it would be time to actually go back and and start over from scratch and see okay what are the new technologies right. that are and you know hope, I guess finding that sponsor is difficult, but it, I, I think it's yeah just the, the, a color change. It's so dark in there now. It just it's so hard to walk through yeah. and it just doesn't have that. It doesn't have an exciting feel. I mean I, I I can understand the overlay and I can go with it, but I think they just need to make it a little more appealing. Yeah, it's you know I, I get the the Nemo thing is cute and our kids love it and it's uh, it's a people eater you can get a fast yep. pass for it but why because it never has more than a five minute wait to get on it on it <laughs> in it anyways. Now, was there a time now? I'm just this is like going back, but also now was there a time when fish like there was more fish and more animal more you know ocean life in the aquarium than there is now? Because I always feel like now it's just kind of like dull like there's not. It, that, huh? If you read the documentation that they put out, the number of fish and the different types of species of fish have fluctuated wildly over the course of the years. Yeah. So it started with like, we have 150 species of fish. And then two years later, it'd be like, we have 80 species of fish. And then I think now it's like, we've got 40 species of fish. And, <coughs> excuse me. And I think 
It's really Pretty hard to keep fish. Walk out there say, There's Marvin. He's our fish. Yeah. yeah. I think it's really <laughs> hard to keep fish alive in a giant aquarium. Uh, and they did all kinds of stuff like the, the coral, like there's a lot of fish that eat off of coral. Well, the coral aren't real. They're developed by yeah. a company, I think in Chicago and they're artificial. So then they had to come up with like some pellet system there. They could put pellets on the coral and then have the fish eat the pellets. So there's, I mean, it's, I think it's really, really hard to do that. Sure. I think that aquarium thing is really difficult, which is probably why there's not one of these in every city that's even more gigantic than that. So, no, was opening day was the glass cleaner than it is now because I feel like they need to get in there with some Windex or something. It's just like <laughs> blurry. They have to clean that. Apparently, they used to clean it all the time. That was like one of the out. job functions of the people that work there on the inside in the suits was to go clean the the windows quite often. Hmm. Okay. Well, with that, guys, we'll wrap up this month's Living Seas. If you have any questions or any concerns or comments, or if we did anything wrong, send us an email at uh, podcast at Rotary I, I, I do, I do want to note one other change. Hang yeah. on. I want to note one other change to the attraction. When it opened uh, and you would eventually exit Seabase Alpha at the end, uh, you exit the same way today that you exited then when you come out back into the daylight except they've extended the attraction. Originally, there was no sea of strollers when you <laughs> exited the, the attraction. Now there is. Very, very true. very true. The world's eighth ocean there is the, <laughs> the strollers. Sea of strollers. All right, now that we've wrapped up the main topic, um, let's go over some of our, our T-shirts and merchandise. Last month, we, uh, we, we released the uh, Mr. Toad's family shirts, so to speak, as a... All right, Hal, so we had, what, what six uh, Mr. Toad shirts total? That's right, six Toad, Molly, Ratty, oh, the whole gang. The whole gang, and they're all different colors. Collect them all. They're perfect for your family. So yeah, families, put, put them on. Everybody's a Toad car. You can find each other, all that good stuff. Yep. Stickers, phone cases, it's all there. It's all there, all sorts of different stuff. We have some new products coming up. I think GT's working on those. Um, so it's retrodisneyworld.com forward slash support us. I would like a Broilmation shirt. Ooh, <laughs> that would be cool. Broilmation apron. Well, Broilmation apron. How do we have anything for this month? Before maybe that should be the design. Are we going with something with seas? Living seas. Come on. <laughs> I, no, we should. Okay, I'll tell you what. We'll do a twofer. Yeah. We'll do okay. a Broilmation shirt. Okay, and. Yep. On top of that, we'll do a Living Seas uh, shirt too. So I think awesome. we'll do a we'll do a Hydrolator tribute shirt, uh, kind of in the spirit of like the Tom Nabby one with the Nabby Grabber that we did. We'll do a we'll do a Hydrolator shirt. So very nice. And we should let our our listeners know too that the Hydrolator stickers should be coming back, but they'll probably be known as Water Elevators, uh, <laughs> Water Elevator stickers. So um, look for those. We'll certainly announce them when they are back, and they'll be available in Hydrolator number one, two, or three. Your choice. So, so, so again, you can find all this good retro WW swag at retrodisneyworld.com forward slash support us. All right, guys, I think that's about it for this month. So next month. Um, we have something that's going to time well with the July 4th holiday. Um, we're going to be going back uh, and, and looking at America on Parade. We've got some film of that and talking about the history and, and uh, how that was all developed. So we've got that coming up in June. And uh, with that said, uh, guys, anything else uh, before we close out here? No, sir. No? no? I'm good to go. All right. Well, as always, thank you to all of our listeners. 
keep those emails and phone calls coming. We love hearing from you. If you can give us an iTunes review, please do. Appreciate the shout-outs. Uh, let your family and friends know about us. And uh, thanks again. And with that, Brian, take us out. Well, as you ascend to the surface, everybody, avoid the bends. Follow Todd McCartney and Retro Disney World on Twitter and Instagram at RetroWDW, on Facebook at Retro Disney World. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, you can find our producer, Jason Bartell from Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS, our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner, and follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, at GoAwayGreen. For JT Kuzier, at LS1JT. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook, at Brian P. Miles.